welcome tonight uh, to chapter 15. We're going to be dealing with chapter 15 and bearing one another's burdens. So I hope you're ready to roll and uh, get into this great word. I'll tell you, I love Romans. I read uh, just recently that um, Chrysostom, who was one of the uh, first century Christian luminaries um, way back in time, uh, had Romans read to him twice a week, twice a week. And so why? Because Romans is so rich. So he had it read to him twice a week. So we're going through the book of Romans. It's been a very enriching study, and I'm so thankful that you're here with me again tonight. So let's just dig right in. Last time we looked at the principle of the weaker brother, and above all else, we saw that stronger believers are supposed to bear with the weaker believers, not lose patience with them, not you know, drive them out of the church by preaching at them or treating them less than. And we should never place a cause of stumbling in their path. And that was the message of chapter 14. Um, don't let your liberty as an older believer uh, cause a weaker brother, a younger believer, to stumble, okay? Now, in chapter 15, Paul is continuing with the same thing. He's, he's teaching us how to one another one another, how to fellowship, how to do church, how church is to be conducted, how we're to handle one another, treat one another, uh, right? We need to hear this. This is very practical instruction. So in chapter 15, he's going to take us to even higher ground as far as how we treat one another. It's a great thing to treat a weaker brother in love, and we should. But it's greater still, a higher level still, to treat him in the spirit of Christ. Not just the spirit of love, but the spirit of Christ. Now, let me tell you what the difference is. The spirit of Christ demands that we take the hard road, all right? Uh, Now, what's the hard road? Well, first of all, it's the cross-demonstrating road. Uh, the, The road where we demonstrate living a crucified life in front of the weaker brother, all right? He says in verse 1 and 2, We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak, and not just to please ourselves. Now, there's the hang right there, because our generation, we're all about pleasing ourselves, right? Uh, Our culture, all about pleasing yourself. As the old saying goes, you're number one. You know, you are numero uno. Take care of number one. we We are taught as little bitty kids that we're number one, and anybody else is secondary, we got to take care of ourselves. But that is not Christian teaching. That's cultural teaching. Christian teaching, he's number one. And Paul even went so far as to say, uh, esteem others better than yourself, all right? He goes into all kinds of realms and areas and ideas foreign to our culture, our number one culture, that that you're the number one. No, uh uh-uh. And that's what he says, not to please ourselves. Each of us should instead please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. So selfishness doesn't have any place in the Christian life. Nope. Paul is not stating that we should give in to the weaker brother's desires. Let's be clear about that. If he's struggling with alcohol, struggling with drugs, struggling with immorality, 
He's not saying give in to those desires, do those things with them. But we're to act in a way that'll be of lasting benefit to them. We are to help him carry the cross of his weakness. We're to help him win his battles. We're to help him in the hour of temptation. We're to help him make it to the other side. Not do what they do, but help carry them where they need to go. That's the idea. Uh, he says, carry them along. We are to, we are to uh, build them up. We're to carry along. We're to bear their burdens as one might help lift something too heavy for another to carry alone. Now, I think most of us here tonight could easily say that uh, there have been things that I've struggled with that I could not win the battle alone. Um, some habit, some addiction, some weakness. We've all got something we struggle with particularly hard. And there are times we've had to say, please pray for me. I'm leaning on your brother, leaning on your sister. I cannot do this alone. And we've helped them carry it. That's the idea. To bear means to help carry along. Now, verse 3 says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In other words, what's hitting you is hitting me. What's making you hurt is making me hurt. And that's the body of Christ. This is the ministry of the body of Christ to one another. The Lord Jesus lived to serve God vertically and to serve and help men horizontally. And I have always contended, you really can't serve God vertically without serving men horizontally because God is all about loving people. So if you're going to love him and walk with him, he's going to have you helping others in the blink of an eye, all right? So that's the idea. He died not just for the strong, but for the feeble, for the faltering, for the struggling. He always went out of his way to bear someone else's burden. He always went the second mile. And that's what Jesus taught us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go with him too. If he asks you to, uh, you know, carry something a certain distance, carry it double that distance, all right? He was patient. Think about this. He was patient with Peter when Peter blundered, all right? He helped him carry that blunder. He forgave him. You remember that moment at the fish fry uh, after he had risen from the dead in the early morning hours, asking Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter saying three times, yes. And Jesus reestablishing relationship with him. He helped him carry his blunder, all right, his denial of Jesus. Uh, he, he was patient with James and John when they got in the flesh and said, hey, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on the people of Samaria who haven't let you come into the town? And Jesus patiently bore with them. And Thomas, he bore with him when he doubted. And even, yes, even Judas, when the blood money jingled in his purse, Jesus bore patiently with Judas. Romans 15 not only directs us to the cross-demonstrating road, 
but also to the character-building road. The apostle turns our attention to the Old Testament, pointing out its permanent value. Um, there are some that teach today that the Old Testament doesn't matter. They don't know what they're talking about because the Old Testament is full of truth for us today. Now, uh, and it talks, we go back to the Old Testament. Uh, Paul often quotes from the Old Testament. Um, it should be read and studied because he points to it as a character-building road. Look at verse 4. For everything that was written in the past, the Old Testament writings, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So do we find uh, the, the road of following Jesus difficult? This character-building road of shouldering the weaknesses of others? Is it hard? Are we apt to lose patience with the weaker brother and his scruples? Yes, we are. Yes to all these things. Well, Paul says the antidote is the Word of God. We must delve into the Scriptures regularly to see how God helped others over the hard places. And as we see how He helped them, their story helps us. And you know me, I'm a broken record with our congregation you got to be in the Bible every day. You can't not be in the Bible every day. You need the manna of God's Word every day. You need to pray every day and be in the Word of God every day. That is a non-negotiable, all right? And as we get into the Word of God every day, it instructs us and helps us to do what we're being called to do on the hard road, the hard road, the road of walking like Christ walked. Paul said that we should not only take the hard road, but we should take the high road as well. Verse 5, may the God of patience and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as, uh, as you follow Christ Jesus. God is the God of patience, Paul says. Uh, and that same characteristic is to be among his children. As our God is patient, we're to be patient. The qualities that make for harmony in the local fellowship of believers are to be found in the character of God Himself, who is patient with us, long-suffering with us, merciful towards us, forgiving towards us, and as He treats us, we're to treat one another. So the high road leads to rejoicing with other believers, which leads to corporate joy and happiness. Verse 6, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, then too, the high road leads to the receiving of other believers. Catch this. And consequently, hospitality in the local church. Verse 7, accept one another. Why should I accept one another, even if they're different from me? Because Christ accepted you. I guarantee you, you and I were different from him, all right, in order to bring praise to God. So it brings praise to God when we accept one another, receive one another, no matter our differences. So then Paul's point has literally come full circle. He began by telling us that God has received the weaker brother. God received him. He finishes by reminding us that Christ has received us. With all of our foibles, all of our failures, weaknesses, wickednesses, idiosyncrasies, oddities, uh, with all our defeats of character, all of our spiritual infirmities, 
He has received us. So must we do the same with the failings and faults of others. Now, please, church, uh, you know, and I'm talking to myself here. We've got to remember these things. You know how many people are not in church on any given Sunday morning because of the way they were treated when they visited some church somewhere, and maybe they had blue hair, pink hair, covered in tattoos, dressed in blue jeans or whatever, nose rings, ear rings. You know, maybe they look very, very different from what we might consider a pretty standard churchgoer. And when they walked in, they were looked at that way. And they didn't feel, you know what? They didn't feel accepted. They didn't feel received. And so they said, you know, uh, if this is the local church, then I believe I'll just go to church at home. Because if this is the way I'm going to be treated, just because I'm not like them, then I'm just not going to go to church. And I have been treated that way in my early, early days as a believer when I had long hair and I was a freshly saved hippie, if you will. I went into a very um, uh, traditional denominational church one Sunday when I was trying to get into church. And I was looked at just that way. And you know what? I didn't even sit through the sermon uh, because of the way I was being looked at and the way I was being treated at a distance. No greeting, no hello, no welcome, just looks. All right? You know, you're not one of us. And I left. And thank God the Jesus movement happened. And I found... um, Meetings where uh, people that looked like me were going and were welcome. And I found a place to plug in. But Paul is saying, don't do that. But receive people that are different from you. Receive people from all walks of life. Don't, don't be uppity. Don't be condescending. Don't look down on people because they're not like you. Because at the cross, we're all equal. All right? That's the idea. And since he received us, Weird as we were, some of us, when we got saved, we are to receive others. That's the idea. That's how you do local church. Now, next, Paul brings the main body of his letter to the Romans to, the, to a close. First, he's going to reiterate that Christ became a servant of the Jews to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. Verse 8, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the Jew on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. What a great thought. How many things we ought to do, how many things we ought to, uh, how many ways we ought to act, all right, uh, be, on behalf of God's truth, on behalf of his truth. He then confirmed the promises, that is, uh, Jesus confirmed the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by fulfilling them. Now even the Gentiles can glorify God for the mercy that Jesus has shown them. In support of this, Paul quotes four Old Testament scriptures. Let's read them. Verse 9. He's reading Psalms 18, verse 49. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Amen. Now, most of us right now in this room are Gentiles, and it was God's plan all along that we would be brought to the cross of Christ 
and into the covenants of God and be saved. And it brought glory to God. And that's why Jesus did what he did on behalf of the truth of God in dying for us. Verse 10, again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 43. Then again in the Psalms, 117, verse 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Finally, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10, there shall come uh, the root of Jesse, or out of the root of Jesse, he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. Amen. Aren't you glad that we as Gentiles hope in him now, that we know we're going to heaven, we know we have eternal life? Glory to God. In a nutshell, God's redemptive plan was that through his son, born a Jew, and as to his human nature, that he might reach out and record and re- reconciling love to those of every nation. And again, remember, as I've taught you, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. If you're not a, if you're not a, a descendant of Abraham by birth, then you're a Gentile. And thank God we Gentiles can praise the Lord through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and enter into his great plan of salvation. Amen. Now, next, Paul points out, that the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus is preserved in us through hope and joy and peace. Look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, God is the God of patience in verse 5, but look what he is in verse 13. He's the God of hope. Our God is love He's the God of patience, and he's the God of hope. Uh, Love, patience, and hope flow from God. And there is nothing hopeless about the Christian life. Uh, We have blessed assurance, amen? Not just assurance, but it's a blessed assurance. And there's nothing hapless about the Christian life. Uh Uh-uh. We have boundless assistance. Now, Paul points out, characteristics in the brethren that are worthy of praise. So he's going to start pointing out little, little character sketches, of characteristics that the brethren were walking in that we ought to be walking in too. Verse 14, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So note, To be a good man is to be the very best kind of man that can be. If you're a good Christian man, that's the very best kind of man you can be. The goodness Paul is praising is the practical goodness manifested in helpfulness towards others, in bearing the burdens, carrying the burdens of the weaker brother in his or her struggles. But they are also diligent students filled with knowledge. Boy, what a need this is in the church today. The word for knowledge here is the Greek word gnosis, which means to progress in knowledge, not to know everything all at once, but to progress by learning and by effort and by experience, by giving your studies some elbow grease 
by intentionally studying, being studious in the Scriptures. He's saying these people, these good men and good women, were characterized as being people of the Word. Uh, They were learning, ever learning, always growing, always grasping uh, more revelation, hammering down more truth, growing in greater knowledge. That's what they were. That's what the Christian life. He's saying this, this is part and parcel of what the mature believer should look like. He says, these good and knowledgeable men use their gifts to stir the believers up to their responsibilities. They were able to admonish one another, which means to caution or, or to reprove gently. So you've got a picture here of people growing in grace and in the ever-increasing knowledge of Jesus Christ by learning ever more, ever daily, the Word of God. You ought to know the Word of God better this week than you knew it last week. That's what he's saying. The gift of exhortation possessed by these good men is crucial to the church because Christians and all people have a tendency to settle in your lazy boy and sort of sit soaked and sour and stop growing. That's why you need people around you to exhort you, to encourage you. For instance, I can tell you, there's a lot of people have gotten out of the habit of going to church on Sunday mornings because of COVID. COVID happened. uh, Church shut down for a while. They got in the habit of getting up, staying in their pajamas, getting a cup of coffee, flipping on the computer, and I don't know, watching the services online. And they got so in the habit of that that they got out of the habit of going to church. Now, it used to be that because of COVID, um, they stayed home. But now a lot of them, oh, they're in Walmart. uh, They're at Lowe's. They're at Home Depot. They're going to people's houses, having parties. Um, They're functioning in society. But, oh, I, I, I can't go to church because of COVID. But see, that, that doesn't work. Now, some people who have uh, extenuating circumstances, uh, uh, you have reasons uh, that you really shouldn't take any chances at all with COVID. I get it. But there are people who could easily be here, but they've gotten out of the habit. And that's why it's so good to have gentle exhorters in the body of Christ saying, come on. It says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is, um, but start coming together again, uh, and so much more as you see the day of Jesus' return getting closer and closer. So if you're one of the people I've been talking about, I love you in Jesus, but come on, let's get back in the habit of fellowshipping in person, because we're here and you can be here, all right? So the Christian life is basically needs to be understood as requiring discipline, drive, and determination, not laziness, lackadaisicalness, um, like I said, not sit, sitting, soaking, and souring. So um, we need exhorters that are growing in the Word, growing in grace, growing in maturity to gently exhort people who are kind of kicking back and, and getting lazy. Next, Paul has a word of explanation about his 
missionary philosophy. The verses that follow go to the very heart of global evangelism. And so let's look at it. He begins by explaining his own responsibility before the Lord, verses 15 to 16. I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of, the, of, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is telling us, I was called to minister to the Gentiles, and he regarded his ministry in a really remarkable light. He viewed himself as a spiritual priest to the Gentiles. Now, Moses and Aaron had offered up animal sacrifices to the Lord, but Paul's offering was the offering up of the Gentiles as an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What a cool way to look at evangelism, that when we win people to Christ, we're offering them to God as an acceptable sacrifice, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're making a spiritual sacrifice to God when we lead somebody to Christ. So what we do for God as a good work, like we were talking about earlier in this series, might be seen as a fragrant sacrifice to God. Hallelujah. Now, next, Paul points out the reality of what had been accomplished through him. Now, he's not being boastful. Uh, Remember, he once said, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. Now, look at verses 17 and 21. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus, in my service to God, will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition, verse 20, to preach the gospel where Christ has never been heard, has never been known, so that I would not be building on somebody else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So we see that Paul never rested on his laurels, never. He never kicked back and said, well, you know, I've done a great work. I've been all over the world. I'm getting on in years time to retire. You know that retirement's not in the Bible? No. Transition is, but not retirement. What I see is God's people, as long as they could serve, they did serve. If it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, as long as God kept them on the earth, they served. Now, you may retire from your worldly job. I get that. But we never retire from serving Christ. Never. As long as we have breath and energy and ability, we are to serve Christ to our final day. Amen. So that was Paul's attitude. Uh, 
here's the way he looked at it. Time is too short. The task is too great. The laborers are too few. And the issues are too grave. He saw a lost world when he looked at the world. A world which in his day was focused on Rome. And although it was no part of his plane to reside at Rome, it was part of his plan. I'm sorry, plan, not plane. It was no part of his plan to reside at Rome. It was part of his plan to reach Rome. All right? Verse 22, he says, This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, I'm not going to kick back and retire. I've been longing for many years to get to you at Rome. So he has admittedly placed Rome on his itinerary over and over again, only to have it postponed, put off, and even hindered by the devil, he says, in one place. So while Paul planned with care, he never became a slave to his plans, but his plans were always laid before the Lord in his leading and always allowed the Holy Spirit uh, to, to set the pace and set the direction for his life. And if God messed up his plans, then he allowed God to mess up his plans. And so when he finally went uh, to Rome, it was not as a pioneer, which he originally wanted to do, but it, he went as a prisoner. Yet now we see his determination to yet still go. Verse 24, I plan to do so to come to you when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. But then the apostle tells when his visit to Rome will fit into his plans. He has a trip eastward before the planned trip westward. And little did the great apostle know, the greatest missionary to ever live was the apostle Paul. Little did he know, yeah, he would make it to Rome, but in chains as a prisoner, bound, but he did make it to Rome, and he did testify to Caesar, which was sort of the apex of God's plan for him. Verse 25 through 28, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service for the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Verse 27, they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So they had taken up an offering and sent a really large offering to Jerusalem because of the famine that struck. So Paul is making the case, uh, Gentile churches, since you have been reaping the benefits of the covenants God made with the Jew for the Messiah to come and die for the sins of the world, then you need to share in your material wealth to them because right now they're in the middle of a famine and they are starving and hungry and desperately need help. And so you owe it to them to help them. And that's only right. Verse 28, so after I have completed this task of taking the offering to them and they have received this fruit, the great big offering, I will go to Spain and I'm going to visit you on the way. So very soon after writing this letter to the Romans, Paul left Corinth 
and took with him a delegation from the various churches he had been visiting, which were sending this financial gift to receive or relieve the poverty of the Jerusalem churches. So finally now, we come to the end of chapter 15. Paul tells why he's coming to Rome. By the way, this is why the devil tried to stop him. Let's read it, verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. He wanted only to come so he could impart a blessing. Oh, folks, I wish we, myself included, would think this way, that we're carriers of blessing if we know Jesus. Uh, we're, we're, we've got precious cargo within us everywhere we go. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And Paul said, you know what? I've got a treasure in me. And wherever I go, I'm going to release that treasure, and I'm going to leave a blessing behind me. I wish we would think this way, and let's try to remember to think this way. At work, at home, with relatives, with friends, uh, wherever we happen to be. When we come to church, let's be thinking, I'm going not just to get a blessing, but I'm going to release some of the treasure that's in me, and I want to be a blessing as well. In chapter uh, 1, verse 11, he said this, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. So he said, I've, I've got a blessing to give you. I'm going to impart a gift to you. And that's why Satan has tried to stop me. That's why I've been hindered. And I'm still going to make it somehow, some way, someday. By God's grace, I'm going to make it there. And then verses 30 through 32 he beseeches them to join in the struggle with him. Let's stand together and let's read this out loud together. Can we read it out loud with me? Standing with me, let's read it. Are you ready? Starting in verse 30. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. 31. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service in Jerusalem may accept, be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will, by God's will, I may come to you with joy, and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's lift hands to him and say, Jesus, thank you. And let's say together, help me as a believer that has grown some in God. Help me as an older, more mature believer to help the younger struggling believers in their struggles. Help them make it to the other side. Help them in their needed victories. Pray for them. Encourage them. Exhort them. And help me, Lord, to play a pivotal role in the church being the church in these last days. And thank you for this wonderful instruction. Help me to walk it out as I have heard it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.